Well, good morning, Mercy. It's good to be back with you. Um, we are going to not be looking at First Peter. Uh, going to take a change this morning and look at the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. It's the chapter about Daniel and the lion's den, but we're not actually going to look at the part about the lion's den, but instead we will be looking at what got Daniel into the lion's den. Daniel has been a captive under two great kingdoms, the kingdom of Babylon and now the kingdom of Persia. He has served their kings in a variety of roles. He finds himself in a very significant role under this king of Persia. The Persian Empire, historians believe, was the largest empire known to the world at this time, possibly occupying half the population of the world. So let's read in Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It pleased Darius, king of Babylon, or king of Persia, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give an account so that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other officials and satraps because of an excellent spirit that was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satrap sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdoms, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When, Dar when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three days, three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any man or God within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the lions, the den of lions. The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. 
Then he answered and said before the king, then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Blessed is the reading and the hearing of God's word. Please pray. Gracious God, we ask that by your ever-present spirit you would come and you would capture our mind's attention as we look in your word this morning, that you would renew our heart's affections for you, that you would speak for your glory and for our holy joy. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning's sermon is going to be uh, somewhat interactive, so if you, you have a bulletin insert in your bulletin, if you could take that insert out and keep it nearby because uh, we'll be using it together at some points. Uh, first interaction, uh, how many of you could name one or more of the seven ancient wonders of the world? How many of you, I know you're Presbyterians, but you're allowed to raise your hands, okay? How many of you could name one or more of the seven ancient wonders of the world? Okay, some of you can. Matt, what, would, what, what comes to mind for you? Pardon? The Lighthouse of Rhodes, okay. Over here, what comes to mind? Colossus of Rhodes, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Yeah, we could, we could go down the list. Um, the Great Pyramid of Gaza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Statue of Zeus at Olympia, the Colossus of Rhodes, the Lighthouse of Alexandria. But I bet there's one that none of you remember, and that is the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus. A seventh wonder of the world was built by a Persian satrap who ruled in a region of southwest Turkey. Now, what do satraps do? It says that King Darius assigned 120 satraps throughout his whole kingdom, the largest kingdom known to the world at that time, half the population of the world. What did satraps do? Well, one of the things they did was they collected taxes. How in the world did a Persian satrap build one of the seventh wonders of the world? He lined his pockets, seriously lined his pockets, collecting taxes. Now, what it says is that the king appointed 120 satraps but he had three men who oversaw those satraps so that the king would not, what does it say? So that the king would not suffer loss. The king doesn't want his satraps to rip him off and build mausoleums. And that's actually, we get 
the name mausoleum from the satrap who's buried in that wonder, Masalos. Well, there's one of these three men that are recognized by the king as being excellent in spirit, without error, who he believes he needs to set over all of the state traps to assure that he does not suffer loss. Now, if you are one of those 120 satraps collecting taxes so you can build the seventh wonder of the world, what would you think of having Daniel to oversee you? That's sort of dangerous. You're lining your pockets. Daniel's there so the king doesn't suffer loss. He's a man of great integrity. So what do the satraps decide to do? Well, what do we do in our political system when you wish to bring down someone in power? You look for to dig up dirt, right? So they say, okay, guys, let's, you know, let, let's get our tendrils out there. Let's dig up the dirt on Daniel. And they can't find anything because, as it says in the passage, he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And then in verse 5, it says, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. The only way we're going to find a problem with Daniel is if we, we find something that he's doing in, devote, in devotion and delight in his God. So they concoct this great idea. O King Darius, may you live forever. How would you like to be addressed like that? I tell you what, king, we've got this great idea. You are worthy of such great honor as the king of the greatest kingdom of the world, occupying half the population of the known world. I think it would be a great idea for 30 days you passed the law of the Medes and Persians that nobody could pray to any of their gods except you. And if they do, well, we've got the line. And so what does Daniel do? Well, let's see. In Daniel, verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed. So he knows what's coming down. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously, as he had always done. You see, the satraps had done their work. They had found out about Daniel. He always does the same thing three times a day. He goes home, he goes to his upper chamber, and he prays towards Jerusalem to his God every day. So what we're going to look at 
is becoming a community of devoted prayer. There's only two points to the sermon. We're going to look at some examples and exhortations. And then we'll look at what energizes devotion prayer. Example and exhortation. Example comes in Daniel. Now, I mean, think about Daniel. He hears, he knows that the document had been signed. Couldn't he have just gone up to his room and closed the window? I mean, couldn't he have done that? Or maybe Daniel could have said, you know, God, for 70 years, I prayed faithfully, I've been devoted in prayer, you know, I've gone up to my room, and, but you know, God could, like for 30 days, could I just pray in my heart, you know, not go back to my house three times a day? Daniel knows that it's been signed, but he goes and continues in his devotion to prayer. Now, having looked at that example, we say, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not a Daniel. I mean, Daniel's like this super spiritual saint. You know, we learned about him in Sunday school. Well, I know. You and I are not Daniel. We're not, quote, that spiritual. But you know when Jeremiah wrote to the exiles with Daniel? You know what Jeremiah said to all of the exiles in Jeremiah 29, 7? He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on his, on its behalf. Become devoted in prayer for this nation of exile to whom I, that, that's just a general exhortation that Jeremiah gives his people. Daniel's just an example of somebody doing that. Let's take another example, Jesus. Now, the Gospels record that Jesus praying 26 different times. Jesus prays alone. He prays in public. He prays before meals. He prays before important decisions. He prays before healings. He prays after healings. He goes out to quiet places, free from distractions to pray. His life is like always in a prayer mode. You say, okay. Now, wait a second. I just told you I'm not Daniel. Well, I'm definitely not Jesus, okay? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, he had that relationship with his father. But you know, Jesus expected his church to be a community of devoted prayers. And in John 13 to through 17, Jesus' sort of final extensive instruction to his disciples before his crucifixion, what does he emphasize to them? Prayer. Now, I could quote a number of passages, but let me just give you one, John 15, 16. Jesus says to them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit and your fruit would abide, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. See, Jesus' vision for his community, it's a fruitful community. It's fruitful because it's a community of devoted prayers. And we see that example, we see that exhortation as you go into the New Testament, 
and look at the church. Now, take your bulletin, your insert, like I said, and right in the middle of the bulletin, you'll see five verses. There are five verses where we see both the example and the exhortation to the church to be a community of devoted prayer. Now, let's, let's read these together. I'll say the reference, and then we'll read together each of those verses, okay? Acts 1.14, read with me. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Acts 6.4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Romans 12.2. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Colossians 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Devotion. We're, we're familiar with that word. Uh, we've, we've, we've witnessed it. Um, we, we know what it looks like. 2015, um, June of 2015, I went into the hospital with pneumonia and a blood infection. Um, doctors thought I might die. I spent a week in the hospital, and I was being pumped full of IV antibodies. I came home from the hospital, and I continued taking oral antibiotics. Now, I don't know about you, but when I take a lot of antibiotics, it like crushes my GI system. I mean, it just like really messes it up. Well, I have three daughters, and they're all into really healthy eating. And my wife says, you know, dad's home, and man, his, he's a mess. And they said, well, you know what he needs to do? Mom, get him the book, this book on the autoimmune diet. He is to read that book and to begin this diet. And I did. And the idea behind devotion to a diet is not just that you get healthier, but it's that you develop patterns of eating that continue. And uh, so I, I did. I felt a lot better, and my eating patterns and our eating patterns changed from that. Devotion. Devotion. We watched the Winter Olympics. We watched men and women athletes who are very devoted, unremitting in care for what they eat and sleep, unremitting in their devotion to push through energy, injuries and discouragements, um, devotion. We read this morning in our New Testament reading, Colossians 4.12, of Epaphras, who brought the gospel to the church in Colossae, who's now in Paul with Rome when Paul writes this. And Paul says of Epaphras, he is always struggling on your behalf in prayer, and the word struggling is used of the devotion of an athlete or a warrior. 
So we're all familiar with the idea of devotion. Now I'm going to stop and let's do a gut check. At this point, sort of midpoint in the sermon, let's do a heart check. How is your heart responding at this point? Okay. Some of you may be checking out. I mean, you're going, seriously, Keith, I've read the books, I've tried the methods, I've used a prayer journal, I've done it all, and it works great for a while, and then I just, it just goes back to the same old routine, mundane pattern of prayer in my life. I'm checking out on this one. Some of you may be just sort of feeling guilty. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I want this to be the delight of my heart, but gosh, every time I try to lay hold of it, I feel like a failure. And some of you may just be saying, wow, I really want this for us. I really want to become a community of devoted prayer. I want to be a part of that. Well, if that's the case, let's ask, what energizes devotion. Now, usually we think that devotion is energized by self-discipline. Wrong answer. Self-discipline is energized by something that you place great worth upon, that becomes so valuable to you that it reorients your life, it redefines your priorities. That's where devotion comes from, worth. What will energize you? What will energize me on a journey of becoming devoted prayers? Well, it takes more than discipline totally inadequate, something has to become of such worth that it will redefine your priorities and reshape how you approach living, basically. So what is the effective energy of devoted prayer? That's our second point. What is the effective energy? Well, let me just summarize it in a simple way. A great vision of God fuels a great heart of prayer. A great vision of God fuels a great heart of prayer. Let's go back to Daniel, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed... He went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He gave thanks. Now, you know, when I read that, I get sort of confused personally. He gave thanks. He's signing his death warrant. And he's giving thanks. What's going on in his head, in his heart? Well, because there's something 
of greater worth than his life. There's the glory and the beauty and the marvel of his God, which is of immeasurable worth, which is worthy of his devotion. Even in light of the king's life. You study Daniel's prayers, and you know, Daniel, the book of Daniel is you learn Daniel is a devoted prayer. And, and as you study his prayers, what you begin to see is that Daniel had this amazing vision of his God. He he's the and I'll just sort of highlight some things that Daniel prays about his God. He's the eternal God. He's the God to whom belongs wisdom and might. He's the God who changes times and seasons. He's the God who removes kings and sets up kings. He's the God who knows what is in the darkness and light dwells in him so he can reveal the light on darkness. He's the great and awesome God. He's the covenant-keeping God of steadfast, unfailing, great love for his people. He's the God of great mercy. He's the God who forgives. He's the God who is righteous in all his ways and all the works he has done. He's the God who inclines his ear to hear and opens his eyes to see. He's the God who acts to make a name for himself. You see, Daniel had this, this great vision of his God that energized his praying. And it's such a beautiful thing. There's a, there's a quote in your bulletin, if you look at that. This is from a professor at my former seminary, Westminster Seminary. He says this, if your prayer life is less than it should be, then likely it has little to do with discipline or method. Those are helpful, but they are beside the main problem. What is the main problem? Simply, our view of God is less than it should be. The greater our God, the more significant will be our prayer life. It's all about vision. Daniel had such an amazing vision of his God. You notice it says in verse 11 that in his petitions and pleas, he has his window open towards Jerusalem. Now, do you understand what Jerusalem was like at this point in history? It has been leveled. It has been destroyed. The temple has been leveled to the ground. King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire had come in and killed thousands upon thousands of Jews, had removed the rest of them and spread them throughout his empire and left Jerusalem in ruins. And Daniel is praying for Jerusalem. Why? Because as God had promised that in 70 years he would raise up a king who would send his people back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. His vision of God, the Most High God, the King of Heaven, who always accomplishes his purposes and fulfills his promises no matter how impossible they seem. Jesus' vision for us, for the church, is that we become a community of devoted prayers. 
And he, he illustrates that for us in, in the prayer that he taught us, the prayer that we, that we prayed this morning. How does that prayer begin? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, the prayer begins, God, I want your name honored, hallowed, lift, uh, name. That, that encompasses all that, that God is. The fullness of the vision of his glory and grace. I want your name honored. I want to be captured with this great vision of who you are. And then you notice that the rest of the Lord's prayer is about a great vision of God. Our Father in heaven, the God who reigns in heaven and yet sees his people and cares. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The God who rules. Forgive us, the God who forgives. Give us this day the God who provides. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the God who protects. The prayer the Lord teaches us is grounded in this great vision of who he is. Well, let's close with this. I think all of us have read, you know, the great saints of the past and their marvelous prayer life. I have a love-hate relationship with those people, you know? Martin Luther. It is said of Martin Luther that on a normal day, he rose two hours early to pray. On a really busy day, he wanted to make sure he had at least three to four hours to pray. <laughs> the man who launched the Reformation. George Whitfield. It said that he read God's words on his knees and prayed over portions of it for hours. The man who launched a great awakening. Hudson Taylor, China in, founder of the China Inland Mission, whose ministry is the basis of an ever-growing church in communist China. He would say, if you want to see mighty wonders of divine power and grace wrought in the places of weakness, failures, and disappointment, let us answer God's standing challenge. Call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Amy Carmichael, a woman whose ministry, 55-year ministry in India, changed Indian culture's relationship to women and orphans. She spent the last 20 years of her life bedridden in India from an injury, and she prayed and prayed and prayed. And she would write prayers the core of the day, take prayer out of the day, and it would collapse. We could go on and on and on. And I know we're probably all saying, but I'm not a spiritual giant like all these people. Well, I know, you've already told me that. You're not a Daniel, you're not a Jesus, and now you're not Martin Luther, George Whitfield, Amy Carmichael, or Hudson Taylor, okay? I get that. But if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, I know you share the most important things with these people, the most essential, vital things things with these people. You have a Father in heaven who declares you righteous in Christ, pleasing 
in his sight, a father who delights in you as his child and his bride, who has commissioned you to greater works than he did. John 14. You have a father who has put his name on you, his spirit in you, so that you may have access to the throne of grace with intimacy and with boldness. You have the spirit who sheds light on God's word so that your heart by be, might be molded and melted by the great worth of God, your Savior, and his Son, Jesus Christ, that Jesus and his work would increasingly become the treasure of, your, of incredible worth so your heart is moved boldly to Abba Father for his great work in the kingdom of Christ. And you have the spirit within you who in your weakness intercedes with you and for you. And you have the Father at the right hand of God who intercedes and receives your intersection and perfects it. You are so like these people of devoted prayer. In our crazy world, how will God make a difference for the cause of the kingdom of Christ? It is a crazy world. Well, Daniel's life would make a difference in two kingdoms, but specifically in the end of Daniel 6. It says this in verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Daniel's life rooted in the amazing worth of God whose vision compelled him in devoted prayer worked greatly in the kingdom. And Jesus comes to us in his word and he says, verse John 14, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father and whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Son. 